Because property is a slow game. My, my first mentor, he always said, property is not a get rich quick scheme. It's a get rich slow scheme. Welcome to the Real Estate Monopoly podcast. My name is Kerwin Donis. My brothers and I got into real estate investing to achieve financial freedom and help underserved communities in Guatemala, where our mom is from. Real estate is the vehicle we're taking to achieve our goals. And you can too. On this show, we share the stories of some of the most successful real estate investors to show you that you can succeed in real estate just like they have. Each episode, we deliver inspiring and educational content that will empower you to launch your real estate investing career and achieve your financial goals. Let's go. Daniel Wood is an investor and an entrepreneur. He has co-founded six companies together with his wife, Gisela Wood. Daniel is the CEO and chairman of the board of the Swedish Wealth Institute, AB, that supports entrepreneurs and investors by bringing the teachings of experts from all over the world to the Nordics. Among the partners they work with are the Rich Dad Organization, Kim Kiyosaki, Randy Zuckerberg, Success Resources, and through them, Tony Robbins and Momentum Property Education. Daniel Woods is an investor, but he's not in the US. As I mentioned, he's in Sweden. He invests throughout Europe. Daniel's been through his own ups and downs in real estate. He was almost bankrupt after things on his first few deals didn't go as planned. But before breaking into real estate, he had a regular corporate job. I am probably a little different from the other guests you've had. I live in Sweden and I don't invest in my own home country. I invest in the UK and in Spain. Uh, The reason for it is Sweden is a very, very regulated market and it makes it really hard. I actually just read an article, one of the largest property owners in Sweden, they own, you know, 30,000 or so apartments are selling their entire Swedish, um, Danish and Dutch and uh, German portfolios because they're investing more into the UK, into Canada and the US. So those are a lot more attractive markets. Uh, I started out investing in the UK about a decade ago now. So it's, <laughs> it's been a while. Uh, and it really started for me when, when my son was born. So I had like, like most people, I had a regular corporate job. No one in my family has a background as investors. No one has been an entrepreneur. You know, they've been in uh, public service and, and health and, and working with different political pro- projects, but no one has been an entrepreneur. But when my son was born, it's, I think a lot of parents have been through it, but it was such an a, such a big experience for me. Because in Sweden, we get a lot of time off when when, when our kids are born. So at the first two weeks, both parents have to be home for two full weeks with the kid. That's mandatory. So as we were doing that as new parents, we were walking with with the baby carriage. We take walks, you know, try to get that little guy to sleep, right? Try to get William to finally let us rest. And we would take this walk and right where we lived, there were a whole lot of daycares. And it was one that we would walk by every day or on every walk. And we would see the kids playing down there on the, on the playground. So we'd look down and, you know, you, you see like, wow, in like a few years, that's where William's going to be. That's what he's going to be doing. And we would take our walks, you know, at like 7 a.m. At, you know, we would take another one at 10, 12, 2, 4, you know, whatever, all the way to 6 and later. But what I started noticing was that the kids were already there when we walked by at 7 a.m. Kids were already at the daycare. And when we walked by again at 6 p.m., that's when the last kids were being picked up. 
And over the next few days, we started, you know, recognizing some of the kids. And I started seeing that it was the same kids who were there at 7 a.m. who were there at 6 p.m., meaning they were at daycare for like 11 hours straight. And when I looked at that, I realized, wait a sec, when I go back to work, I got to be at the office at 8 a.m. So I'm dropping William off at 7 when I, you know, when I leave work at 5 p.m. or even later, well, that's 6 p.m. I'm picking him up. And I realized that means that he would be spending more time with his teachers than with us as parents. And that for me was such a, like, oh, wow, you know, they're actually going to have a bigger impact on my son than I am. And, and that's like the system we've grown up to, right? We grow, grew up, you know, get a good job, get a good education, get a good job, and you'll, you know, you're financially secure. And I, that's how it perpetuates, right? We're all indoctrinated and, you know, the kids, I, I would barely get to see my kids. And I said, well, I need to do something else. And that's when I started, you know, this, this discovery. And I, and I read a book that I'm sure a lot of the people listening to this uh, have listened, have read called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And that was the first time I ever heard the term passive income. And it just blew my mind. It's like, wait a second, so I need to create assets, things that generate income, and I need to reduce my liabilities. All right, so that, that became my all-consuming focus. How do I get more assets? How do I get less, uh, less um, liabilities? And, and I tried to figure out what kind of assets should I be focusing on? And, and they talk a lot about property in that book. And I got really, really excited to invest in property. I, I understood it. You know, I understood if I buy a house, I can generate cash flow every month. I'll use the capital appreciation. I'll use that cash flow to acquire number two, number three, number four, and then that portfolio could grow and I could finally be free, right? I could finally have that time with my son. And the problem though was in Sweden, if you're going to succeed in property, you need to have 10, 20, 30 million dollars to invest. The market is really geared towards large scale developers. So if you have 30 million dollars, then fine, this can be a really, really good market. But I did not, right? <laughs> I was a regular employee. I did not have 1 million. So I, I knew I had to do something else. And that's where I was introduced to investing in the UK. When he was first starting out, Daniel had a lot of confidence. He was certain that things were going to go well for him. He had invested in his education and teamed up with the right people. And that's a good thing. But as he would soon learn, things weren't as they seemed. Daniel's faith in himself and real estate caused him to miss some major red flags. Eventually, things started to take a turn for the worse, and Daniel was blindsided. Ironically, I got to say, I actually had the, the kind of the opposite. You know, when we got into it, I was so convinced of how well this was gonna go. I was so convinced of it because when you think about property, it's really easy when you put the plan on paper, it's right. It's you find a property deal, you buy it, you do whatever work you need to do to it, you rent it out and you're done, right? It's like, that's it, how, how hard can it be, right? And I was so convinced that that's how easy it's gonna be, but as they say, the devil's in the details, right? 
How do you find the right deal? How do you know it's the right deal? How do you make sure that the project goes according to plan? How do you make sure it doesn't go, you know, go awry? How do you make sure it gets let out properly? And then how do you handle the finances so that no one is ripping you off? Those details, I didn't even know that that could go wrong. That wasn't even a part of my, my thought process. So I went in completely trusting, right? We were told, yeah, I got myself a mentor. He said, work with these people. I said, all right, awesome. Let's do it. And we threw money at it and, you know, it just, it just didn't go according to plan. So I think for us, some limiting beliefs would have been good, right? Some of that fear of like it, you, it, things go wrong. Some of those, because I think in property, one of the big issues, and, and I don't know if I want to call it a limiting belief because it's actually, it's, it's, it's overconfidence in many cases. I think those that's the other camp that a lot of people don't talk about. A lot of people have fear and a lot of our students have fear, right? You got limiting beliefs about money. How am I going to get money? Where is the money? I can't afford it. I can't do it. Uh, the fear of failure, you know, what's going to happen if things go wrong and uh, the fear of success, you know, the whole, do I deserve it? All these things. That's one one set of issues. I didn't have any of that because I was in, I was so focused on the fact that it was going to go great. Money would just come to me. I would figure it all out. The deals would go amazing. And then when we made money, of course, I deserved it because my whole goal was to be able to give back. I was going to help my parents. We had these projects lined up in Africa where we were going to help people in Kibera, in Kenya to get out of poverty. So it's like, of course, I deserve it because these people deserve it. And I'm just a conduit. So it was like I didn't have these limiting beliefs but I had overconfidence and I had so much of it. And I think that's the other side of it where a lot of us go get in there with just that faith that everything is gonna go brilliantly. And, and you could use some of that fear of failure sometimes. This fear of failure does help make sure that you double check things, you, you do that extra due diligence. And it's like, like they say, and when you're doing sports or, or in a competition, nervousness is good not too much you don't want to paralyze yourself but that healthy amount of nervousness that gets you on your edge it gets you better so i don't think you know don't let the limiting beliefs stop you let them be your your engine for success and when you do that you can become really really successful and that that's what i wish i'd had it came from in my weakness finding a mentor is important you can learn from other people's mistakes and experiences but an investor should always do their own due diligence when they approach investing, no matter who assures them that everything is as it should be. Daniel learned this when his first few deals began to experience challenges. These issues began to peel back the reality of what was going on, and what Daniel discovered was worse than he could have expected. In the end, I am super, super grateful to that mentor because, well, I was in Sweden, and if they hadn't come to me and said, Daniel, you should be investing in the UK, I never would be where I am today. But what they did was they 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 kind of built up because you know so many people it was at an event so it was at a seminar. So many people in that room have that starting limiting belief. So they really build up how easy it is, how great it's going to go. So for someone like me who kind of started on neutral rather than on on there, I just went through the roof. It's like, "Oh my god, this is great. I'm going to do it." Ah and got so excited. And then what they promised me was they were going to introduce me to these great partners and people. And I just took everything by faith. I did not do any due diligence myself. And that's that's the mistake. So really everything that could go wrong did go wrong. I mean, the accountant we had didn't rip, he didn't rip us off. He just didn't do his job. 
right? So, you know, we sent in all the receipts, everything, and basically none of it ended up getting getting into our books, right? None of it made it into our accounts. So, and, and I didn't notice it because I didn't know I had to look at it. I didn't notice that until like a couple years later and I had to spend tens of thousands of pounds redoing the last years of, of accountants. Uh, so, so that was big loss that came over time. But then really the big losses were two. It was the deals themselves, but it was also currency because you know we were investing from Sweden and Swedish krona into the UK in pounds. And right in the middle of all this, when everything was going wrong, Brexit happened, which meant that the UK left the European Union. And the thing is that hasn't really hurt the pound. The pound is kind of back to where it was. But when it happened, the instant that vote went through, the pound collapsed. And two weeks later, two weeks after that vote, I owed investors money in Swedish krona. And I had the money in pounds in the UK. So that loss over that vote cost me right there about 100,000 pounds in a currency exchange loss that it turned out if I had had a mentor that was international, I could have actually secured myself against that using an, a, a, a currency hedge. So that would have allowed me to take a, I think I would have still lost maybe three, 4,000 pounds, but that would have been a lot nicer than losing 100,000. So there are things that if I'd had a mentor, what I always say, a mentor should be a person that's done the same journey that you want to do, that has faced challenges and setbacks, and that has overcome them. And my problem was I had a mentor to overcome challenges and setbacks. It just wasn't the same journey because he was British and I was in Sweden. And it was these details he missed. The big money, though, was lost in the deals, right? So those two events, bad accountant, missed currency, that's about 150,000 pounds of loss. But I lost another 250,000 by trusting the wrong partners. And that was people who stole money from the company and literally part partners I, you know, who, would, who created fake build reports, fake invoices, had us pay them. And then you know, when we later went through the books properly, we realized that, well, this money has just been siphoned out. And then just deals that went wrong. I mean, there where it was just total incompetence. One of our, our first partners, they, they got us these three blocks of flats. Uh, well, it was three terraced houses that we were remaking into blocks of flats. So we're building 11 flats in total. And they had this great upside, great deal. If everything had gone according to plan on those, it would have been amazing. Those deals were, were you know, one of those one in a million. The problem was, this was the biggest deal our part, this partner had ever done. And they were just not up to the task. They, their big pitch was, you know, my uncle's an architect, he's going to run the project. And that sounded great, you know, experienced. Uh, but when, but halfway through the project, I get a call from my, uh, from my partner who says, Daniel, I got some great news. We've actually been able to rejig the floor plan and we got another flat in there. And I'm like, well, well that, that's great. Obviously, I saw the valuation go go up and, and you know, that's amazing. I said, well, well, what does that mean, though? Do we have planning for it? And so they're like, yeah, we fixed it. Everything is dealt with. I'm like, oh, OK, awesome. Great. Later, when we'd realized that these people had been stealing money for, from us and, and we finally kicked them out, uh, we went into it and it turned out, no, we did not have planning for this flat. And the reason why this flat was created was because when the architect was designing it and the builders had started building, 
he had actually made the, the staircase going from, you know, outside to the second floor. So it was three floors and a flat on each floor. When it came up to the second floor, well, that stairwell went right through the living room of the bottom flat. <laughs> so, you know, most tenants won't want someone, you know, wanting the stairwell going through so that they realize that after they'd already built it and went, uh oh, OK, well, let's just take these two rooms and we'll call them in their own flat. And, and it's just so many horrible parts to that, that project that, that put us through it. And that's really where I learned, like, it doesn't, if you, even if you're a thousand miles away, like we were, you still got to be on top of it. You still own the project. You can't delegate the entire responsibility. And that's what my co-founder of Momentum, Lucas, did. He, he was on the projects and he made sure they went according to plan, even though that was a partner that really was out there to kind of rip him off. He made sure not to get ripped off. So you can start, you can work it out whatever happens if you're on the project. And that's what I learned. That's why we brought Lukash into Momentum when we started it, because I knew he could help our students. Though it's always great to hear about people's wins, it's often their mistakes and the deals that didn't go so well that have the best learning lessons. Daniel experienced a lot of hardship on two of his first deals. A lack of due diligence and oversight made him vulnerable, and things took a turn for the worse. Though he didn't realize this immediately. This was the second deal. We, we, we accepted three deals at kind of the same time. This was the second one we accepted. The third one we accepted completed first. This one completed second. And the first one we accepted <laughs> completed third. But so all these three happened at the same time. And uh, basically, the first one actually went decently. It went pretty well. But then it was this deal, which ended up costing us... 80, 90,000 pounds in the end. And then it was a third deal that ended up costing us almost 100,000 that went wrong. So it was kind of everything we tried to do. That was kind of my feeling. Everything I touch turns rotten. And it was after this, and, and it took a while before this came out because these were pretty big projects. The flat was small, but the other two were pretty big projects. And they took a while. And it took a while before we started realizing everything that was going wrong. And, and the losses started slowly mounting up, but, but again, property is so slow. So a lot is happening under the surface before you realize that, wait a sec, this is how bad shape we're in. Right. And it was when that came out, like what bad shape we were in. I got a phone call, as you said, I got a phone call from my accountant and he said, Daniel, it's time to bankrupt your company. And, and I'll tell you in Sweden, that's a really, really big deal. I know in the U S Everyone's like, hey, you got to go bankrupt three times before you become uh, become successful. You know, get it out of the way before you're 30. And it's one of those things that like you do it, you learn, you grow. But in Sweden, if you bankrupt a company, that basically is the end of your career as an entrepreneur. You, you're no company that you found will ever get credit again. You, it's like no one, you're shunned, right? That means you're you're done. You're not going to be able to do this. And so when I heard that from my accountant, I'm like, oh no, okay, so what, what does this mean? What, what, what happens now? And he said, well, so what we'll do is we'll sell the assets you have and we'll pay back as much as we can to your creditors. And then we write off the rest of the debt, you know, shut down the company and we'll start you a new business so you can start out fresh. What do you mean start out fresh? He said, well, yeah, you, you start over from zero. Yes, you'll have a bankrupt company, but that's fine. And you go again. 
And that's why I said, wait, wait, wait. So you're saying I can start over without this crushing debt. Like, I mean, imagine hearing that, that stress I'd had for the past like years with, with the financial back. And I mean, I had phone calls from people. I'll never forget. I got a phone call from a woman, one of our investors who said, Daniel, I need to get my money back. There, there's a war going on in, in you know, the country where I come from. My family is there. I need to send them the money to get them out of the country. And, and, you know, I, obviously I wanted to say, yes, like, of course, but we didn't have the money. We'd lost the money. And I had to tell her, I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry, we don't have it. And, and, you know, she broke down crying on the phone. And I mean, I felt horrible. I felt, I felt like a horrible person to not be able to help her. And now here's my accountant saying, you can hit the reset button and start over. And, you know, you can do this fresh. You can do it right. I'm like, wow, that is amazing. But then I realized, I asked, so Michael, what, what does this mean? If I don't pay the debt, who does? He said, well, I mean, your investors aren't going to get a lot of money back. And I realized basically what I was doing was I was, I would have had to tell that woman, like, I lost your money and now I'm not going to give it back. You know, screw your family. And, and I, I say, look, I can't do that. We're, we're not shutting down the company. I'm not throwing everyone else under the bus. I have no idea how but somehow we're going to turn this business around. And, and I think, you know, having that integrity, I actually ended up signing personal guarantees for all of the investors capital, which meant that, you know, if we didn't turn the business around, I was going for personal bankruptcy. So, so that was something we did because I, I didn't feel that, you know, I was the one who'd lost the money, not them. Yes. They trusted me. They'd invested in a startup, but it was my responsibility to do it. So I actually signed these personal guarantees. And I think when you do things like that, when you do, you know, keep that integrity, I think good things tend to happen. And, and during all this, we were trying to educate ourselves. We were finding ourselves new mentors, new teachers. The challenge was none of these teachers were coming to Sweden. So we had to travel to the UK, to the US. And with all the expenses we already had, adding that into it, it just wasn't right. During these difficult times, Daniel continued to push on. He found himself connecting with multiple mentors who provided life-changing guidance that helped him right the ship and dig himself out of the hole he was in. Among these mentors was Kim Kiyosaki, CEO of the Rich Dad Company. So we actually started a new company uh, called the Swedish Wealth Institute, where we brought speakers from all over the world to Sweden, and they would come and they would educate our, our audience, which was people like us, right? People like us who wanted to learn entrepreneurship. And what, what happened was we started working with the Tony Robbins organization through Success Resources. That was just a big moment for me. I had some amazing insights through Tony Robbins. And we, st- we became the partner for Success Resources, the one who does his events outside of the US. And we're the ones who brought Tony's teachings to Sweden and would, and would help people go and see him live in London. And one of the other promoters in, a, in Estonia reached out to me and said, hey, Daniel, look, we, we love what you're doing in Sweden. We actually got Kim Kiyosaki coming to Estonia. Would you like to have her come and teach in Sweden? And you remember the book that started it all out, right? It was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And here it's the author, Kim, is coming. You know, I can bring her to Sweden. And we obviously said yes. She came to Sweden with, with her great friends, um, with, uh, with Lisa, with uh, Seal, um, 
was Steel Sanford with Rhonda Jaggers and it was Kim. And we had this amazing Empowered Women event with these four amazing speakers. And uh, what's great when you host the event is you get to know this teacher. You get to take, a, take them out to dinner. And we actually got to know Kim and we told her about the situation we were in. And she actually jumped on multiple calls with us and, and helped us. And slowly, slowly, we, we started turning things around. We restructured the debt in the company. We renegotiated some of the setups. We, we got rid of some of the bad deals. We actually went out and did new deals. Even where we were, we went out and did new deals. And slowly, the ship got righted. And it took a lot, a lot of time and a lot of work. But it was the help of people like that. We were really blessed to meet Randy Zuckerberg and her team. And they helped us with a lot of strategy and a lot of, a lot of planning. And, and I mean, dozens more, there's too many to mention. And I think that is what, what you'll see. I mean, if you're new to property investing, so if you're listening to this and you're new to property investing, there are sharks out there, right? I mean, I've been through them. I've, I've, been, I've, I've been abused, right? But there are also amazing people out there who are willing to help, who are willing to support and, and who make an impact. And we've been blessed to meet dozens of them. And, and hopefully now with what we're doing with Momentum is we're able to give back a little bit and kind of give others what, what they gave us. Partnerships are easy to start, challenging to sustain and hard to leave. That's why it's so important to set up detailed operating agreements between yourself and a partner. As Daniel learned, partnerships can be challenging to end when you don't prepare for a breakup. It's about half a million dollars. So, and, and I mean, I know for some people listening to the show, though, well, half a million, I, I could have written you a check and worked it out. But <laughs> for most people who are just, you know, just employees, just starting out on the journey, you know, that is, you know, that's my next 20, 30, 40 years of putting every dollar aside to pay back these investors. That was what I kind of had. That was where I saw myself. It's like, this is, I will hopefully when I retire, I will be out of the, out of the red and be able to start living. I felt, you know, I was now going to be an indentured servant for the rest of my life. And, and thanks to the help of Kim and Randy and, and Tony's organization, we, we were able to do it a lot quicker, obviously. Yeah. Well, that, that reflect on your entire real estate journey. I know you've discussed um, some of the obstacles you've faced, but um, what would you say has been a, another memorable obstacle that you've um, experienced in your journey that you haven't really talked about? And what did you what did it take to overcome it? And what did you, what did you take away from it? Right. That's a, that's a great question. I was actually talking to one of our mentor students just this week about it um, because uh, it's it's uh, two women. Um, who are working together uh, on this. And they're, they're not related. They're just friends who decided to start this journey together. And, and that is great. One of the things I had to do as the mentor was explain like, well, look, there's going to be money involved here, right? You're doing property deals and things might happen that you might not be friends in three years anymore. And so we got to negotiate now, how do you make that exit? And, and I learned that because the, we actually had a business partner that worked with us when all these deals went wrong. So when we were losing these hundreds of thousands of pounds, it wasn't just me and Gisela. We actually had a business partner who was involved in well as well. And his job was to raise the finance and our job was to run the projects. So you can imagine what he felt about us in that it was our part of it that went so poorly and that fell apart. So with that, you know, with that relationship, 
that fell apart um, pretty quickly. And the problem was then we hadn't negotiated an exit. We, we didn't know what that would be. So we both started with our standpoints. You know, we were looking at, look, this is the ownership percentage of the company. So if we're exiting, then this is, then we split the loss evenly based on shareholding. And while his position, which is fair, I, I, I kind of see that more now than I did then, but his position was, well, look, I raised finance successfully. You screwed up on your side of it, which was the project management and running of the deals. You should be taking all of the loss and you should be paying me for the time I spent. So we kind of started with those kind of opposing views where it was like, well, I think you should take you know, half of the 400,000 pound loss. And he said, no, you should take the entire 400,000 pound loss. Plus, I want you to pay me to leave. And that is a very, very, very big gap to bridge. And it took us four years of negotiation to land on a settlement there, which cost us a lot of legal fees, accountancy fees, and processes. So what I did with uh, with Camilla and Carolina was we've sat down already now. We said, look, you guys got to negotiate. If things go wrong or if things go well, if things go up, if things go down, what does an exit mean? If someone says, I want to exit, what does that mean? What are what, what happens in that case? If someone wants to leave, what is the process? Do you sell the portfolio and, and so on? And, and they already now have that in their agreement so that if something goes wrong, they just say, look, I, I activate clause 3.2 and, and they can exit. And, and I've used that successfully myself. We had another partnership where we just felt we wanted to go separate ways. There was nothing wrong. It was just like, look, we don't click. This just didn't work. And we could just activate the contract. We had to have one call to kind of go through like, well, when we say profit, what profit do we mean? And we, we, we went through that. It was a half an hour call and then we were done. And then that that partnership was over and we could both go our separate ways and, and you know, compare that to a four year slog of lawyers and accountants and negotiation to just like, oh, all right, let's activate that clause. So that's something I would definitely recommend if, if you're going into partnership with anyone, be it an investor, be it with a business partner, even a friend or family member, get the exit on paper. What does it mean? Try to map out every scenario you can think of and make sure you have a written agreement that says this is what happens in that situation. Defining success isn't easy and everyone has a different meaning for the word. For Daniel, it means doing what you love and spending time the way he wants. Not only is he able to live life on his own terms, but he's also able to give back. All of this has been made possible because of real estate. What's actually really funny, we, we do, uh, I'm, I'm in a clubhouse uh, club called Bread for the Head, and we do uh, clubhouse rooms every Thursday. One of the subjects we've been talking about for the past few weeks has been success and like, how do you define it? One of the things like, and we've talked a lot about finding your passion, which has been really, really fun. And one of the things that came out in these conversations was to find your passion, go back to what you wanted to do as a kid. Right. And for me, I always wanted to play baseball, but that that didn't happen. Uh, but my other passion, and this is actually really funny, was as about when I was eight, nine years old, I figured out basically the the a similar a similar strategy to investing in stocks that Warren Buffett used, you know, just buy stocks, hold them for a long time, use the dividend and reinvest it. 
that uh, that was my idea as an eight-year-old kid. Sadly, my family weren't into investing in stocks, so they never actually helped me open a brokerage account and, and do it. And that kind of fell by the wayside. But I realized this a couple of years ago, like, well, actually, as a kid, what I wanted to do was I wanted to acquire assets. I wanted to invest. I wanted to create that snowball. And and that's what I do today. I, we run an investment company. We don't just invest in property today. We got properties in the UK. We got property in Spain. We uh, we do we invest in cryptocurrencies. We invest in stocks. We do venture capital. We actually co-founded a golf resort in South Wales, uh, which has been really really cool. And we have companies. So really, when you think about it, is like that is what I wanted to do as an eight-year-old kid. What I do today. I had the embryo of that as an eight-year-old kid, and that's that. I think is the is one as one side of success. It's like, are you doing what you're passionate about? And I'm surprisingly passionate about looking at spreadsheets and and investing. So that that really, I'm I'm happy to have. The other side is you know my family. I'm you know like I said, I'm I'm the I'm a baseball coach here. I'm a hockey coach. I'm I'm their local soccer coach. So I'm, I'm able to be with the kids. I'm, I'm involved in all these sports. You know, I have practices with them, you know, four or five days a week and, and I get to spend a lot of time with them. So that, that has been such, such a gift for me. And then you have the last kind of piece of the puzzle, which is uh, the ability to give back. And we've just partnered with Eden reforestation projects. We've, uh, me and Giselle set up our own foundation uh, a couple of years ago, and, and and now Momentum Property Education just partnered with Eden Reforestation Projects, which, by the way, I think is an amazing project. They pay like 10 cents. I think it's like 10 cents per tree planted. It's like nothing. So we, we you know, we're, don we're donating enough to plant thousands of trees. And our ambition is that they'll be planting millions of trees every year based on our donations. And, and it's just so inspiring, or it, I think it's even less. It might be like one cent per tree. It's like insanely little to plant the tree and, and you're changing the world. So uh, that that's something I, I'm very, very passionate about. Creating a legacy, empowering others through real estate, and having an impact are all core aspects of Daniel's long-term vision for his life and his business moving forward. Despite the hardships he's encountered throughout his career, he's built a successful business and portfolio and he plans to help others with the success he has amassed. The personal goal for, for the family is, uh, you know, we're creating a legacy company here for, for our family. So, you know, I want my kids to be, be a part of this. I want their kids to have it. So that's something we're building. And obviously we have our milestones that we want to hit on, on net worth and, and those kind of fun. Um, but then really it, the after it comes out to the outer world and, and uh, momentum property education is really our main client facing business, right? I mean, properties, we buy the property, but the management agent works with people. So momentum is where we get to work with people and help them. Our goal is to help 1 million people become financially free through property investing. And we chose that number for a reason. I was reading uh, Richard Branson's two biographies, his Losing My Virginity and Finding My Virginity. And I, I love those books. And if you haven't read them yet, please do. But what he says in Finding My Virginity, his passion now is obviously philanthropy. 
And he said, if they had $60 billion a year, they could essentially solve every humanitarian problem in the world. They could give everyone food, healthcare, education, infrastructure, water, um, you know, all the things you need to have a, you know, a good life. And what we realize is, you know, $60 billion is not going to come from the governments, right? They, there's not a chance they're going to be able to push that over. The only way to do that is private individuals have to come together and do it. And we realize if, if a million people gave 10% of their income to charity, and these million people are successful, they've built property portfolios, they are, you know, they have good wealth, that would be about $100 billion a year which means we could take 60, 60 billion of that, follow Branson's plan and solve all the human, humanitarian issues of the world. And then we'd still have $40 billion a year to solve um, global warming, right? We could plant trees, we could clean up the oceans, we could do so much. And, and so that's our passion. That's really what I'm working towards is like, if we can help people become free, if, if I'm help anyone, listening to this episode, that would be amazing. If we, if you become more successful and as a result, you take from this that you are gonna give 10% of your profits to charity, then, then we're changing the world together. Patience and persistence are essential for any investor's success. Daniel not only understands the importance of these key principles, but he embodies them in his own business and the hurdles he's had to overcome throughout his journey is a testament to that. I would have to say patience and persistence, right? So the starting point to being successful is obviously taking action. But I just had this dialogue. We Every Wednesday, we do a Q&A in our Facebook group. It's called International Property Investors. And so you can find it by going to the Momentum Property Education Facebook page. You can join. But every Wednesday, I do a Q&A in that group. And what happened today was... We, we had a woman, she posted, she said, look, I want to be financially free in two years. Is that possible? And, and, you know, obviously it is. But she also said, should I focus first on building capital, you know, building up my capital base, or should I start with cash flow? And that's where it gets a little dicey. Because if you're looking at a two-year plan in property, a flip will often take six to 12 months, right? If you're going to buy, refurb, and sell a property, that's six to 12 months which means she only has time in her two-year deadline. She only has time to maybe do at best three flips, right? Three rounds of flips, which means if she's going to spend that building a capital and then taking that capital and converting to cash flow in that two years, that's going to be really, really hard. So if you're going to do it in two years, you either have to have a lot of money yourself to put in, or you have to have the ability to raise a bunch of money and put that in and go cash flow right away and do really good deals. You can't afford to make any mistakes. And that's why I say, look, don't put that tough deadline on it. I, I always say there are no unreasonable goals, only unreasonable deadlines. And it's great having a deadline. As they say, a goal without a deadline is just a dream. But uh, putting that deadline on is great. But don't hold yourself too tough by it. It's okay to shoot through it. And if you need to build capital, that's fine. So just having that patience, because property is a slow game. My, my first mentor, who yes, it didn't go really well, but still I'm here thanks to him. He always said, property is not a get rich quick scheme. It's a get rich slow scheme. 
So having that patience and persistence, I'll definitely say persistence because that's, you know, look at my story. It's a story of persistence, right? We could have thrown in the towels so many times, just gone back and gotten a regular job, or as my parents said, a real job <laughs> and, and done that. But we chose to go down this route. We chose to do this and we never gave up. And finally, finally, we broke through and we made it. And I think if you can do that, there is nothing that can stop you. If anyone wants to get in touch with Daniel or join his group, here's where you can go to learn more. If someone wants to connect with us, uh, you can obviously go to MomentumPropertyEducation.com is the website. Uh, but we have a whole lot of resources. Like I mentioned, the International Property Investors Group, that's one of my favorite ways to connect with people because we do live Q&As. So just go to the Momentum Property Education Facebook page. You can find linked groups there. Uh, we have our podcast, the Momentum Investing Podcast, where we've been interviewed Kim Kiyosaki and Jordan Harbinger and other amazing, amazing people on that show. And then we do a lot of stuff on YouTube and um, we do finance updates and we talk about different strategies. We do passive income mastery. So if you want to check out our YouTube channel, it's also just Momentum Property Education. So I'd love to love to connect with anyone and whatever media you use, generally we're going to be somewhere there. Thank you for joining us today on the Real Estate Monopoly podcast. If you got value from this episode, please do us a favor and give us a good rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Make sure to visit our website at www.donisinvestmentgroup.com backslash monopoly, where you can subscribe to our newsletter so you'll never miss a show. If you want to avoid the top five mistakes passive investors make, you can also check out our free ebook by going to www.donisinvestmentgroup.com and downloading it. Be sure to tune in to our next episode. Until then, take care, guys. Mm-hmm.